It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. And good morning and welcome to Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening in Toronto and Ottawa. 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto. You could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app if you are not or you know someone that might want to. Download the app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM. And you can listen on your device of choice anywhere across the country. You can also listen on our website. And just as a reminder, any shows that uh, we have previously done are put up on our website. So you can uh, listen to them uh, on the cloud at any time just by looking them up on our website. So welcome. This morning we have Alidia Smoke on the line with us, and she is part of Smoke Architecture. It's a a very interesting-sounding firm, and they have done some very interesting things. And, um, you know, it's it's an interesting architectural firm that is set up with uh, many Indigenous, honoring Indigenous ideas and cultural practices and those kind of things. So good morning and welcome, Alidia. It's great to have you on the line with us. Good morning, David. Thanks so much for having me. So, where are you? Uh, where are you calling from this morning? You have. It looks like you have a number of different places you could be. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, currently, I am calling you from Hamilton, Ontario. Ah, the hammer. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so listen. You, your ties are in Winnipeg and and of uh, North uh, uh, North Ontario as well as Alderville, Alderville First Nation. And um, so you, you, that's all family-based? Is that the mix that your, your families come from? Yep, that's right. Um, my family on my dad's side uh, comes from Alderville First Nation. Mm-hmm. So I've got a lot of family there, uh, wonderful people, wonderful community. I uh, love our Alderville. Yeah, it's a nice um, little community. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, I think uh, one of my cousins is running for chief. It's very exciting. Oh, who <laughs> would who would that be? Uh, it's Martha Smoke. Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, she actually recently uh, did um, was part of uh, spearheading the class action suit for the day schools uh, mm. that's uh, just about to come out. Right. Um, um, uh, and then yes, go ahead. Sorry. I, 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 my ties to um, Obashika King, last full First Nation, mm-hmm. um, near Sioux Lookout. That's where I grew up until I was about 15. And then I've got family all over the place other than that on my mom's <laughs> side, with a big Toronto primarily. So let me ask you, you're, uh, you are the principal architect for, for Smoke Architecture. And, of course, it's very interesting to, uh, to hear of a woman that is in architecture. I know there are many women getting into this and are involved with this. But it looks for like from some of the images that you have on your website that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you, you want to make sure and preserve and make sure to work with organizations and, and that their, their concepts, if they're Indigenous-based, are, are lived up to and that you bring that, that into the work that you do. Absolutely. Um, it's been my real honor to work with uh, elders and knowledge carriers uh, from different First Nations. Um, and uh, when I was just in Ottawa at the unseated um, mm-hmm. opening uh, for um, our team uh, was um, 
uh, representing Canada at the recent uh, 2018 Venice Biennale with Douglas Cardinal. Mm. Douglas Cardinal said something that really resonated with me, which was whenever we work with one of our communities, uh, we learn something tremendously valuable, and that's completely true. Mm. That's Yeah, that's nice to hear. So let me ask you, when did you first get interested in architecture, and when did you then think, hey, this is something I can I can do and, and something I can I can find a way to give back with? Well, um, uh, growing up in Sioux Lookout or near Sioux Lookout, uh, near uh, Lac Bowl there, um, my, it's, a, it's a sort of a hub for people to come and access health care and uh, education. Uh, at that time and still to this day, many of our communities don't have high schools uh, on on reserve, yeah. and so they actually come to more southern points mm-hmm. to access education. And then these these kids, uh, they actually have to stay with other families, so they're completely removed from their normal um, uh, spheres of social support networks and mm-hmm. so forth. Um, and then a lot of the folks who are coming down uh, needed uh, transitional spaces because they were supporting family members going through illnesses. So I saw an awful lot of this uh, growing up. And then my dad actually built housing on reserve, and he'd always bring home stories about it. My mom mm. talked to a lot of the Kokums uh, up from that region when they were visiting, and mm. she'd always bring some stories. Uh, so I kind of understood and had direct contact with um, the state of affairs of our built environment in our on, on our traditional territories, mm-hmm. and I did see the impact of, um, I guess, just a general lack of Indigenous space in the world. Um, we aren't represented in the spaces we inhabit, and it has um, perhaps a subtle but very profound influence on our health and quality of life. And when I myself uh, spent two years uh, bouncing from house to house, um, uh, during a, a period of uh, great transition in my life, um, I noticed my quality of life and my happiness just increased sometimes when the space was well set up. And I thought to myself, well, this is something that could really have an amazing impact um, if I went into this profession and started to bring through Indigenous concepts of space and connection and social networks that just aren't represented right now in Canada's built environment. Mm. Yeah, very true. So, so when you when you look at that, when you say you want to bring that, and you felt better when it was well laid out, what does that mean to you when you when you think of that and you say this is a space that made me feel more at home or whatever it is that that you were you were thinking that when you were in a space like that, it worked. Well, to me, I guess design is almost like water. Um, water can take on many forms. Uh, it cycles, it moves all the time uh, between like the ocean and the atmosphere. Um, but all the life and diversity that it engenders comes from the path that it travels in between. Mm. So from an indigenous perspective, and I've seen this shared in all types of community, value, including the value of design, is defined by the depth of experience, so by process. So to me, good design embodies the wisdom of the it serves, uh, so their principles and worldviews. And the better it expresses this and strengthens those relationships between people and with the land, the more successful it is. Um, that community that you work with um, who's building 
these exciting projects, they have authority over the design process. They mm. need to feel ownership and pride over it. Right. So to me, good design is like water flowing. So it shapes itself to what's already there and strengthens it, strengthens it. It stimulates new growth, and it becomes one and the same with the life of that place. So it sounds like when you go in to work on something, the first thing you do is you go in and observe. You look at the not only the physical space, but I'm guessing also to get to know the people themselves. Absolutely. Um, some of the first questions that we ask are, um, who who are the project champions? Mm. So oftentimes when an architect is brought in, we're brought in when there's already been an awful lot of work done yeah. by various active members of the community to secure funding, to figure out mm. what's needed in their community. And there's a sometimes more than a decade, sometimes decades of work that's, and knowledge that's been gathered. So the first thing to find out is who are those people who have been ushering through this project from the beginning? Mm -hmm. Who do we talk to? Who Mm -hmm. speaks for this project? Uh, The next question is, uh, we have an elder or elders to uh, represent this project and to uh, guide us through this process. Um, When elders get involved in a project, um, it's always positive. They have this amazing ability to hone in on the exact core issues that are um, really the beating heart of, uh, of a given project they're undertaking. They also take a wider view so they can see um, sort of the far-reaching consequences of what's being decided. Uh, so as a, you have to make those snap decisions in a quick-paced environment when you're working on a, on a building and working on a design. But if you have elders there to guide you, those decisions... Uh, decisions are made with a real breadth of knowledge that's been built over generations. Do you specifically work only with Indigenous communities or or people on projects? I try my very best to. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. Obviously, you've studied architecture, and that means you must have gone through a mainstream form of, of architectural education uh, to begin with. So um, yeah. how and how, do, how was that process for you coming and working through that to, to where you are today? Well, um, initially, uh, when I went through my undergrad, there was one class in one lecture period in one class in one year that mentioned Indigenous people and, their, mm. uh, and our architecture. Mm. Um, it was uh, as if we had been completely erased from the narrative of architecture. Uh, my props were usually supportive. Typically, most of them were quite supportive of my um, investigating um, Indigenous perspectives in my work. However, there was absolutely nothing uh, in terms of the formal curriculum that was mm. supporting me to do that, mm. um, which is why it's so tremendously exciting. Um, working with McCune School of Architecture at Laurentian University in Sudbury, um, where I'm a master lecturer, a full-time faculty member, because uh, we are explicitly bringing through those Indigenous perspectives and integrating them into the formal curriculum of our architectural program. It's very exciting. We are about to graduate our very first master's level class of students uh, this Thursday. Mm. Um, I think it's June uh, 6th. And we're just absolutely 
um, so excited to see this happen. Um, We actually have elders who are integrated into the studio environment. So we have um, uh, Juliette Denis, uh, Robert Spade, Mm. um, and and we've had others as well helping us, uh, knowledge carriers and uh, and other. Will Moran is another Mm. uh, artist. and comes and spends time in our studio classes. I teach a class called Indigenous Precedence in Architecture. Mm. And it's, it's a tremendously inspiring environment to be in because we're building this curriculum that it's literally never been done before in Canada. And I think possibly not the state either. Well, congratulations on all of that, especially with the graduates that are coming out. And I see from your website that you actually take interns, and uh, and you have uh, at least one young lady also that is following in your footsteps, I might say, to some degree, with uh, with her coming in as an intern in your, your firm. Yes, this is Larissa Rock. She's an amazingly accomplished uh, woman from um, Wanapate First Nation. Uh, so we are the only 100% uh, Anishinaabekwe owned and operated architectural firm anywhere that I know of. <laughs> <laughs> that's fabulous. That's 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 great. Now, if if people are interested in and want to know more, I'll just give out the website right now. So in case anybody's listening, they want to go just to to get some more information or or look you up and and find out a little bit more about what we're talking about. So it's uh it's of course on the web www.smoke architecture.com so people can go there and you can see the pictures you can see some of the projects you've worked on and uh and and get some more feedback and information on uh on yourself and and the firm itself now so what is it that you we kind of touched on this to some degree but what is it that you 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 love about architecture and i think that you use the word water to describe the fluid the fluidity of things and and how you you kind of work with that that's an interesting term to work with, and, and I guess that's one of the things that makes you like architecture. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, design is not a thing that one puts in place over top of an existing context. Design is a thing that grows up out of that context. So the challenge is always to find out what the community has to um, to guide your work as a designer Uh, because really as designers what we do is we coalesce people's wisdom that they've gathered over millennia in this place and we Mm. make a thing that you can physically see out of it. Um, Douglas Cardinal calls that a sacred act and one Mm. must go about it very carefully. So uh, another first step that we always do is we do community engagement, but in a very um, accessible way. So, for instance, um, when we're working, uh, I'm in a joint venture with Wanda Dalla Costa, who's mm-hmm. uh, from Saddle Lake Cree Nation, and David Fortin, who's the first uh, Indigenous director of a school of architecture. Um, uh, he's uh, Métis, originally from around um, uh, Alberta area, and Saskatchewan. Um, and we're working together on the uh, Indigenous Peoples Space at 100 Wellington, uh, opposite Parliament in Ottawa. Mm. And we're uh, doing a conceptual study uh, of what we can do with this very neoclassical Beaux-Arts um, 
uh, highly colonial building, which has heritage status, mm. uh, and yet it's been gifted to Indigenous peoples of Canada to be a nation-to-nation um, point of contact between Indigenous peoples of Canada and mainstream Canadians uh, and with um, the governments of Canada. Mm. So it's a tremendously challenging project. Mm. One of the things that we did was we talked with each of the main stakeholders at the outset, um, AFN, um, Inuit, uh, uh, the Inuit organization, IPK, and uh, Métis Federation. Um, And we talked with each of them. Uh, We also rolled out an image-based Survey, so uh, getting people to respond to certain aesthetic values to see what resonated. Um, we didn't have time to do a really in-depth one uh, for this because the timeline is short. The opening ceremonies for that building are actually on June 20th in wow. Ottawa at 100 Wellington. <laughs> so I'll be there and our design response, which is a very quick response but mm. hopefully inspiring, will be unveiled at that uh, event. And um, I'm really excited uh, about the possibilities of what could be done mm. with this building because it really uh, embodies the challenge that we as Indigenous people have in Canada. We mm. have this entrenched colonial uh, system of uh, governance, and we're trying now to bring in the millennia's old wisdom and philosophical insights and ways of doing things that really worked for this continent for Mm. so many thousands of years. And Canadians need this at this point in time. But how do you overlay that on this highly entrenched, very ossified uh, colonial structure that exists? So really, to me, this is a symbolic um, building. I, I don't know how it will all roll out. This right. is one point in, a, in what will be a long design continuum. Mm. But those voices of our people need to resonate and sing through this space. Right. Now, when you say overlay, it, it kind of brings the word retrofitting to mind because you're working with this old space. So, so what, is your, what are your thoughts on, on that? Uh, you know, how to, how to work with an existing space and, and retrofitting? It's very challenging. Um, Our pre-contact architectural typologies were so refined uh, for the territories they existed in. Um, We're dealing with a built environment that's almost the opposite of how we had built before European contact. So Mm -hmm. the way that we built was using local materials, using local labor, uh, everyone had the freedom and uh, and the responsibility to build for themselves, uh, for their family. And a lot of it was done by women. Women would gather the materials, they'd put them together, they'd own that space. Whereas now it's a highly masculine environment mm. in the building industry. Uh, I believe we only have Wanda Della Costa, Harriet Burdett Moulton, uh, who's um, Montanay, uh, and she has just retired. We have Rochelle Lemieux, who's Métis, uh, working in Winnipeg. We have Ori Scott. Um, she's Dene, working um, in Vancouver. And um, I believe that's it for registered architects mm. who are women and Indigenous in Canada. And that's the opposite scenario to how it used to be, where <laughs> we actually had um, responsibility and um the final say over our built environment. Mm. Um, The way that we used to build was so um, embedded in 
the rhythms of the natural world. Now we almost carve out artificial habitats out of that natural world, and we call that a human space. Mm-hmm. So it's the the priorities of indigenous design and modern contemporary architecture are somewhat at odds. So the challenge now is what does indigenous architecture look like in a contemporary setting? Mm-hmm. To me, this the we often get to ask to retrofit these. Um, existing buildings and essentially indigenify them. <laughs> right. And it's, it's always very challenging because, you know, a lot of our uh, nations, we like to meet in circles. And sure. A lot of the buildings we're retrofitting are entirely comprised of rectangles. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and so how do you do that? So inscribing <laughs> circles into rectangles is the thing right. I do all the time. Right. Um, but I think that gesture that Canadians are just now starting to want to do, ah, where's our Indigenous people, you mm. know, in mm. our spaces? Mm. This gesture comes from a growing realization on the part of Canadians that the forces of colonialism have actually completely severed their connection to this millennia-old um, body of knowledge that yeah. was carefully put together by our ancestors. Um, and mainstream Canada has next to no access to these incredible revolutionary insights. So I think this this request, can you make this space Indigenous, is like, it's sort of like a reflex. Yeah. It's like, okay, suddenly Canada is realizing that it has a whole limb missing, mm. and that limb <laughs> is Indigenous peoples of Canada. <laughs> and this effort to try and make these spaces, but not uh, their own spaces, inserted into other spaces. It's almost like adding a prosthesis because mm. it will take a long time to heal our built environment, to mm. grow a new and beautiful indigenous environment. So in the meantime, we are left with these prosthesis that we are trying to apply <laughs> right. to replace this missing limb. That's a very interesting comment. I would like to come back to that in a moment. We have to take a pause, so please stay on the line because uh, we're going to talk more. But uh, for our listeners, we're going to take this pause here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. But don't go away. We will be right back speaking with A Lady of Smoke right after this. And we're back on Moment of Truth and Element FM. We are speaking with A Lady of Smoke, and she is the principal architect at Smoke Architecture. And she is calling us today from the city of the Hammer, Hamilton, Ontario. We're pleased to have her. And she was just telling us about some projects that she's working on, one specifically in uh, in Ottawa that's uh, coming up and uh, she's going to be going to on June 20th where she'll be, uh, was it, will be presenting what your, your idea is for that space, lady? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's right. There'll be a, a physical model, um, presentation boards, some handouts, uh, and we'll, we'll show what we heard from... Um, our, our stakeholders uh, trying to bring that into uh, uh, an idea for how to inhabit this building. Mm. If you don't mind me asking, it's a little off topic, but Aladia is a very interesting name. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where does that come from, if you don't mind me asking? Oh, yes. Well, my Anishinaabe name is Kejigabalik, mm. uh, which means uh, she's fast. Mm. And, um, and uh, my clan is uh, White Wolf Clan. Mm. So, Mayingen in Doran. Uh, but uh, my name, uh, Eladia, my English name, is actually Greek, and it's a complete lie. It means I'm from Greece, which <laughs> I am not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it actually means woman of Greece. <laughs> ah, wow. 
Well, where did that get chosen? Your parents chose that, obviously, I guess? Yes, I think there was an inspiring article or something, <laughs> a story about a woman named Aladia. It's like, oh, that's the one. <laughs> okay, well, it's, it, it suits you, I think. So, um, listen, just before the break, we were talking, and you were actually saying a few things about a missing limb and healing, which goes so well with uh, the whole uh, re- resurgence of, of um, uh, connecting with Indigenous people, the, you know, the, the uh, truth and reconciliation uh, and all of those things that are happening these days. So when you say that in terms of architecture, it's an interesting uh, uh, way to throw that twist on, on the whole thing of healing the country in a different way in, in, in so many things, in terms of bringing that... Uh, that physical environment of of healing to the to the to the nation as well. Yes, I think it's really important that um, everybody, not just Indigenous peoples, but actually all of Canada and across our our continent here at Turtle Island, has access to these revolutionary mm. teachings that mm-hmm. were built for so many years here. Um, whenever I listen to an elder. I learned something amazing, even if it's a tiny little five-minute conversation. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And I don't know if they realize that they're just dropping these <laughs> wherever they go. I know. It's, it's, it's wonderful. And it, you know, but you have to be open to listening to that and catching it too, right? It can just go right over your head if you're not, if you're not focused or not, uh, not there receptive to it. Yeah, it was really exciting there. Uh, I spoke to a couple of uh, elders uh, in regards to to uh, um, that art installation that's opening on June 8th at Allen Garden, mm-hmm. office at the Native Women's Resource Center. Okay. Uh, it's called Red Embers, and Larissa Rock was very instrumental in uh, setting up that installation mm-hmm. along with Tiffany Craig and some other wonderful women uh, setting up um, that that installation in honoring our missing and murdered and mm-hmm. Indigenous women. And that um, we're taking, again, that strength-based approach that uh, we acknowledge that these terrible things have happened and are happening. However, the realization should actually spur us to draw closer together and actually support each other even more successfully than we have been. Um, So our installation is called Bone Thunderbird, and it's a double-sided banner. One side is uh, blue to represent women who speak for the water, and the other side is red to represent men who speak for the fire. And um, it's made out of deer bone, which uh, Larissa found a source for, uh, and she she went and um, and uh, sort of rescued uh, deer bones from this place where they drop them after they're hit by cars. Mm. And uh, we processed the bones, smudged them, and we tied them with copper to either side of this banner in the shape of a thunderbird. And what I've heard from elders is that thunderbird is a protective spirit. And the, ref- the meaning of, of that piece is that our, our men and our women support each other. So each bone is tied with a copper wire uh, holding it, each other in place. Um, on either side of this banner. So you see that Thunderbird um, in bone because our women have been like, um, as uh, essentially mowed down Mm. by uh, these colonial processes. Mm. But out of that realization that these things have happened and continue to happen is this strength that we will stick together and we will make something about 
of this situation. Mm. We'll grow out of it and we will get stronger. We'll protect each other even more successfully. Thank you for sharing that. You know, the, the other thing that you mentioned earlier was the body of knowledge, and it's something that I've, I've made reference to on the show as well, about, about just Indigenous knowledge in general that has not been tapped into or used, that has been ignored, I think is maybe a word that you might have alluded to earlier as well. And there is so much there that can be utilized, that can be uh, referenced, that can bring so much more to this world, this troubled world that we find ourselves in, that has just been not been accessed and been thought of as uh, not worth listening to for so long. Yeah, I agree. I think the answer, to me, the answer that I've seen is that we have to mobilize our elders. We have to support them. We have to support them financially. Mm-hmm. We have to support them socially. We have to support their health. Um, we need to give them platforms uh, from which they can share their knowledge, uh, where it's not wearing them out, you know, um, mm-hmm. because they're so generous with sharing these teachings that they have worked their entire lifetime to collect, mm-hmm. sometimes through a lot of uh, difficult phases yeah. of life and, and, and really worked hard to gather these knowledges. And w- I think it's tremendously important that each of us takes the time to do something that assists an elder to do their good work. Um, I, I, um, in regards to that project, I, I spoke to a number of elders about doing it. Um, Ralph Johnson, the Shawanibanis, uh, is uh, the elder who found my Anishinaabe name he runs a healing camp in Rainy Lake, and he's a wonderful man. And his uh, his uh, wife is my lifelong friend, Sarah Johnson, and they have a wonderful, beautiful family. Um, but uh, I see the work that he's doing, and most of it is just self-directed. He doesn't mm. have a whole lot of support to mm-hmm. do the work that he's doing. Still mm. manages to do it somehow. <laughs> right. <laughs> but... You know, uh, mm. you know, Sarah's like, well, we're going out to the camp and I have to do this and I have to do that. And I'm like, right. oh, my goodness, it's just <laughs> yep. such a lot of work. So whenever you have a chance, you know, find an elder, listen to them and help them out with something. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. You're, you're quite right on all that. Listen, I know you have to run, but I wanted to ask you uh, two more things if I could. One is uh, bring it back to, to the, the hard and, and present uh, moment in, in terms of uh, dollars and cents, and of course, not only retrofitting, but working with Indigenous communities, uh, there's always challenges with time and budgets. Yes. <laughs> Usually profound challenges. Yes. Uh, what we have to see happen, I believe, is uh, we have to uh, give good support to our communities so that they have the administrative capacity to um, prioritize their capital spending and also we have to put the reins of funding back in community hands because the status quo up till now has been that our nations are placed in competition for limited funding pots they have to put in applications and then um, the uh, indigenous affairs decides who gets that funding and uh, who doesn't and that that creates a system of fragmentation. Um, the most successful undertakings that I've seen is when our communities come together and we decide as regions what this region needs. So, for instance, one of the reasons that I was able to become an architect 
uh, is I, I have huge gratitude to Northern Anishinaabe Education Council, which is an arm's length third-party education administrator. Uh, a great many of the First Nations in Northern Ontario got together and fund this organization to deliver education. Um, so they've pooled their funding, and uh, it's no longer a political act to fund the students. Um, furthermore, these are trained, uh, highly accomplished education administrators to do this. I feel that our built environments need the same type of intervention. So instead of our communities um, competing with each other for these limited funding pots. Instead, we should come together, we should decide what the region needs most, and we should tell the government, this is what you need to fund. Mm. I would love to see that. Mm. Well, that leads into my last question to some degree, I guess, and that is, what is your dream for Indigenous architecture in Canada? Well, I would like to see an awful lot more of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I would love to see all of our generations have a voice in our built environment. Um, I would love to see elders guiding the process. So, mm-hmm. for example, on that 100 Wellington project I was talking about, the mm-hmm. Indigenous People's Space, we have Elder Winnie Titawanaquat, who's leading our design team. She's an infant elder um, with who's uh, spent years and years in Anishinaabe territory. So she brings a double perspective to her work and having her on that team has got us through such incredible rough spots doing this very difficult project. I think this is a format that other architectural firms could use. Um, We always go out of our way to engage with youth whenever possible when a space impacts youth. Um, So I would love to see all of our generations have a voice in architecture. Right now, the voices of architecture are largely male and they're largely between the ages of about 40 to 65. Mm. Um, So it's a very narrow slice of the generational pool and um, that's a very particular perspective. So I would love to see our all four generations speak for architecture. Mm. I would also love to see um, more of design capability placed back in the hands of our own people. So we currently only have about 14 registered Indigenous architects in Canada, four of whom are Indigenous women. Um, That's wonderful that that we've been able to accomplish that much, but we need so much more. I would love to see our youth entering the profession and seeing this as a thing that's possible, that they can imagine themselves in this role. Mm. We need so many more Indigenous architects. Um, I would love to see our peoples coming together uh, to decide on uh, regional priorities for the built environment because many of these projects are so capital intensive that single communities can only do parts of what they need to do. If we came together and we took ownership over um, the uh, supply and the uh, actual building process, the design, and the ongoing operation and maintenance of our spaces, we would solve a lot of the dysfunction of these high, high capital expenditures that are borne by single communities. Mm. Nicely said. 
Uh, I know you have to go, so a uh, lady, I just want to say uh, Chimi Gwetch for joining us today on the show. I look forward to hopefully having you on again and and uh, taking this conversation a little bit further in terms of architecture and the future of things. Congratulations on all that you've accomplished and all that you will accomplish in the future. And I look forward to seeing some spaces uh, that you're going to be uh, bringing forth in the, in the future. So uh, Chimi Gwetch, once again, for joining us. And we have been speaking with Aladia Smoke. She's the principal architect of smokearchitecture.com. And we're going to take a pause, and we will be back, I believe, speaking with uh, Jamie Tewill, and he is going to be telling us about basketball, particularly the NBA playoffs and the Raptors. Don't go away. We'll be right back. And good morning and welcome back to Element FM and Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. On the line, I understand he is hands-free, but uh, but on the road somewhere, we have Jamie Tewheel. He is the morning news anchor for AM640 Talk Radio in Toronto. Jamie, welcome to the show and thank you very much for doing this. Uh, we really appreciate your time. My pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So listen, um, you know, I know you were on the uh, on the air uh, a little, uh, maybe a week ago or so, with our morning guy here in Toronto, Bob uh, uh, Bob McGee, and you guys were talking Raptors. Uh, of course, we've had uh, one or two games since then uh, in the NBA Finals, and uh, you know, I've been told you're the guy to talk to about this. So. Uh, uh, we're, we wanted to get your sense of things as to uh, now we're into past game two, into game three. It's tied at one apiece. Uh, what's your sense of how things are going to roll? Well, you know, it would have been nice for uh, the Raptors to leave Toronto up two games to none uh, heading into Oakland. But um, a split's not bad considering uh, Golden State, for all intents and purposes, was the heavy favorite for most pundits heading into this series. So, I'm sure the Raptors are, are glad that they were at least able to take game one. I'm sure they would have liked to have had game two, especially when you consider the amount of chances they had in that fourth quarter to really seal the deal. But yeah. in the end, that uh, that third quarter really did them in. An mm-hmm. 18-0 run to start yeah. the third, it's, it's not ideal. And um, we'll see what they can do in Oakland. They'll have to win at least one. I mean, if they can steal both in Oakland and come home and close it out, that would be uh, obviously the most ideal situation for the Raptors. But they got to take one. In Oakland, for sure. So, Jamie, you know, some you, you mentioned a couple of things which brings to mind, and I've heard people talking about this. Did you know? Did the Warriors win, or did the Raptors actually lose that game because of what you just said? You know, uh, it's a good question, and I think maybe it's a combination of the two. Um, you know, whether or not it's an opportunity missed is is sort of a question you want to look at uh, if you're a Raptors fan or a player. Um, the way I see it is that Golden State. Uh, I would lean more towards saying Golden State won that game when you consider the fact that they came out of the half uh, as on fire as they did, as I mentioned, going on an 18-0 and run. That's um, that's tough to do, especially in in an NBA final. So I think you've got to tip your hat to Golden State for a little bit uh, for, for the for the way that they played uh, to start that second half. But certainly the Raptors, as I mentioned, did let a bit of opportunity slip away. They pulled it within four points in the fourth quarter, mm. even at two points at, at one point. And uh, you know they missed a lot of field goals. Yeah. And uh, in an NBA final, when you're uh, shooting less than 37 percent from the field. You're yeah. probably not going to win very many games. Yeah, yeah. They had a lot of opportunity, as you pointed out, uh, to make those shots that they had been making all season and and weren't able to uh, to convert them into into points. Uh, but you also said opportunity, and I think that's the other thing is that because 
you know, Golden State isn't at full potential. They've got a lot, some injuries they're dealing with and, and you know, missing some players. Uh, and, and, and I guess the question is, you know, if the, it, was that an opportunity that, that they're not going to get again uh, with this team? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that uh, it was to, to some degree. I think the Raptors now, though, need to put it to bed. They've got to put uh, game two to bed. It's done. You know, I'm sure they would have loved to have left Toronto, as I mentioned, up two games to none. But uh, they're on the road now. It's going to be a hostile environment, and they've got to focus on task at hand, which is game three tomorrow night. So um, the other thing, of course, that came up in game two was the refing and, and some of the calls that were being made. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, as far as officiating goes, I don't think the Raptors have been given uh, that raw of a deal. Uh, a lot of people focusing on Kyle Lowry, who have actually fouled out of the game. Mm. And that's not something that you see very often in an NBA final, player right. fouling out. But I don't think if you were to look at, look at and break down each of the fouls Kyle Lowry was given throughout game two, um, I don't think that there's any calls that, uh, that were unwarranted. Uh, Kyle Lowry is playing aggressive ball. The Raptors are playing aggressive ball. This is the most physical we've seen them play all year. Mm. And certainly they're probably one of the more uh, physical teams in the playoffs. So the fouls will come when you have that style of game. But uh, what the Raptors have to do is, is their best to manage it and make sure that they're, they're not fouling out too early and losing some of their key players at key points of the game. So being an away game for the next two games for the Raptors, how do you think that will affect their performance, if at all? I don't think that it will. Uh, you know, if anything, it's going to be Golden State may have a bit of a charge because of the home crowd. But um, I actually really like the way the Raptors have played in this series. They've been a dominant team. How they respond on the road, I guess we'll see tomorrow night. But uh, if anything, I think the home crowd may give uh, a bit of a charge to the Golden State Warriors. Mm. Imagine uh, it affecting the Raptors game, so to speak. I, I would be very surprised if they go into Golden State for game three or four and get blown out. Mm. And, and so I guess that's your prediction uh, going forward for the next couple of games? Yeah, I, I like, again, I think just like they did in Toronto, I think that the two teams will likely split the two games in mm. Golden State. Um, again, if you're a Toronto fan, you want to you wanna win both and right. uh, maybe have a chance to close it out on home court. But, uh, you know, Golden State's a good club. We knew this yeah. was going to be a very tight series. It was going to be a dogfight, and we're seeing that. Yeah, and the fact is, of course, that they do have those wins under their belts uh, in, in the finals before. So they have that, I guess, to some degree, that advantage of knowing what it's like to be there. Yeah, they've been there. But uh, remember, this is also a, a lot of those players, those key players for Golden State who have been uh, in the finals before are injured. They're on the sidelines. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, uh, Kevin Durant, obviously, is the first name that jumps out. But uh, Steph Curry isn't feeling that great. Mm. And... Um, uh, DeMarcus Cousins just getting back into the game, uh, into the series in game two. So the Golden State Warriors, as much experience as they have, are pretty beaten up uh, as far as the team goes. And, um, you know, the Raptors really need to take advantage of that if they can. Mm. Okay, I know you're uh, you're traveling and you, you need to get going. I'm just wondering if there's anything else you can add to this just before we uh, let you go. Go Raptors! <laughs> <laughs> okay. Jamie, thanks you know, so much. It would be nice. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, David, it would be nice to, to see a championship in Toronto. I think sure the city, whether it's the Leafs, the Raptors, uh, the Jays, TFC, I mean, we did get uh, a championship from, from Toronto FC a while ago, but mm. let's face it, uh, this, this city is starving 
for either an mm. NBA or an NHL championship, and uh, hopefully the Raptors can, can pull one out because this city will go absolutely bonkers if they do. So you, you just mentioned something that, that made me think of another uh, another question. That is the, the run that, that to Toronto has had with the wins and then this loss, and, and it kind of deflated the, the audience, that's for sure. Uh, you know, the, the crowd was, was uh, kind of very quiet as the game ended last time. Yeah, and, uh, and even Jurassic Park uh, outside the stadium uh, was a bit more subdued than they were in Game 1. And that's going to happen naturally when uh, when the home team loses. But uh, Raptor fans will be out in full force tomorrow night again, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay, Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to maybe catching up again sometime. Absolutely. Anytime, David. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You bet. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. I also want to say Nyawa, Miigwech, Wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, Aidan Wolf, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Janet Lamb, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Bruce Barber, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa, Miigwech, and thanks for listening. This show was brought to you in part by APTN.